Okay. Well, uh, you know, you, if you, <clears throat> I said a little bit about what we did when we were in Costa Rica, but I also taught myself how to play violin when we were there. So I thought I'd play something for you this morning, but I forgot the bow. I'm sorry, yeah, <laughs> forgot the bow. But I- imagine that <clears throat> my family, and our family, we have a valuable heirloom. Let's say that this violin is a Stradivarius, which it isn't, but let's just say it is, all right? And let's say that my great-grandfather played it back in Norway, which he didn't because actually Becky was given this from her grandfather. But let's say my grandfather had it. Somehow he was able to purchase it, and he gave it to my father who gave it to me. And let's say that this is one of a few remaining violins that was made during Stradivarius' golden period from 1700 to 1720. So that's worth a lot, a lot of bucks for this. Now imagine this. Imagine this summer, Becky having a garage sale, and I decide to put a garage sale prize on the Stradivarius to make a few quick extra bucks that I need to buy the weed eater that I'm convinced I need. what, What would you say to me or about me? Be honest. I mean, not too... Right? Pretty dumb. Now, this is a, a lot like what the main character in today's sermon did. And what some people are, are doing today, and what sometimes each one of us are tempted to do in our own spiritual lives. So, first of all, a bit of history before we dig into uh, today's story from the 25th chapter of, of Genesis. Let's, let's a little history here. History we need to know before we understand the true significance of the choice that's made by today's main character, which actually isn't Jacob. Jacob is uh, the series we're doing, but it's his brother Esau. It takes us back to Genesis 12 and, and, and Jacob's grandfather Abraham. And, and some of you are very familiar with Abraham's story. And for other, others of you, this is, this is going to be all new material. You first hear about Abraham at the end of the 11th chapter. And his name is included in, at the end of a list of names given in a genealogical record, a, a genealogical record of men born whose ancestry can be traced all the way back to one of Noah's three sons, a man by the name of Shem. Anyone here ever do a genealogical record of your family? Anybody? 
Raise your hand if you dare. I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if there's anyone who can beat this. My, Monday morning, I'm working on this sermon, and I'm thinking, you know, it'd be fun to see if anyone on staff has done this. And so I step into Rob's office, and John Houston's in there. And, and thinking it was a long shot, but it couldn't hurt to ask, I, I asked him if either one of them happened to have a family history that goes back to someone with some degree of notoriety. And I didn't expect that they would, but only to find out John Houston is a descendant of the guy the city of Houston is named after, Sam Houston. I mean, is that cool or what? Anybody here can beat that? The the one thing I don't understand is why John is Houston and not Houston. And he, when we asked him that, he didn't have a good, good explanation. So you can talk to him about that. But so, so back to Abraham and Shem and, and the guy he descended from and. The genealogical record that we find here in the second half of chapter 11, if you knew this or not, but biblical history has periods called silent years where no special revelation from God or special acts of God are recorded. And this last half of the second chapter, uh, or the 11th chapter is an example of this, and we're, we're given this listing of generations, but nothing is said about what occurred during this extended period of time. What we do know is that it was a time of spiritual decline where virtually the entire human race, including even Abraham's ancestors, had become idolaters, very wicked. And and, and still God was at work in the hearts and minds of people, preserving what was true about himself and preserving a righteous way of life in the midst of a very wicked world. In the same way God works today, The Spirit of God worked then to bring individuals out of the spiritual darkness in which they lived, which is what happened to Abraham. God called him to turn away from the idolatry and the wickedness of the family that he grew up in to make a total break from everything and everyone that had made his life what it was up to that point. And what we discover in the 12th chapter of Genesis is that there is this distinct call, though, to Abraham's life, a uniqueness that came with a wonderful set of promises. So uh, Genesis chapter 12, in the first three verses, we read this. The Lord said to Abram, which was his name before God changed it to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed you. God promises Abraham three things, each one God's blessing in and through his life. God said he'd give him a land of his own, which we now know as Canaan. God said he would make him into a great nation, and God said he would give him a great name. Now, here's what's so important to understand about these promises. While it's true that Israel received the status of greatness under David and Solomon, it was a short-lived greatness. And, and I'm sure if we thought about it a little bit, we could think of nations that came after the nation of Israel that were far greater, far larger, far more powerful. And as far as Abraham achieving greatness, I'm confident that that if, if we talked about this a little bit, comparing what he accomplished with other men and women who've lived on this earth since Abraham did, we'd come up with, I think, quite a long list of individuals who've accomplished a great deal more than Abraham did. But here's the deal. The greatness God promised was a spiritual greatness. 
Israel would be great because through the Jewish people, God would send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to be the world savior. Abraham would be great because it was through his descendants that God's son would ultimately be born. It doesn't get any greater than this. And there's no greater blessing this world could, any one of us, you know, this world could receive through any nation or individual than that blessing of salvation that we're talking about. Follow Abraham's <clears throat> story through the rest of this 12th chapter and the next chap- 12 chapters of Genesis, and you'll see that Abraham believed God and did what God asked him to do, which is why he became a key biblical character throughout Scripture. All of which brings us to the subject for today and the 25th chapter of Genesis. So if you got your Bibles, you can turn with me to that. By this point, Abraham and Sarah have died. And now the story picks up with her son Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, on the birth of their two sons, their twin sons, Esau and Jacob. So chapter 25, verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca, daughter of Bethua, the Aramean from Paddan Amram, and sister of Laman, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. We find out later in this chapter, in verse 26, that he was 60 years old when God finally answered his prayer. Even though Isaac received the same promise from God that had been given to his father, that a great nation would come from him, there were, as one commentator puts it, a lot of anniversaries without a baby. So imagine the joy when, after 20 years of waiting, their prayer is answered and Rebecca becomes pregnant, but it came, but it, but it came with a problem. From Rebecca's perspective, uh, a very huge problem. Verse 22, the babies jostled with each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. The phrase describing what was happening, the babies jostled each other within her. The Hebrew could also be translated this way, but the children almost crushed one another inside her. Remember, they didn't have ultrasounds back then. Ultrasounds like the one that Tim and Carrie had, uh, Weeby, had of their twin sons. Uh, There they are. They're twin sons. Uh, And uh, Keller and Sawyer, now they're running around and growing fast. So Rebecca had no way of knowing she was carrying twins. She's, she's wondering to herself, what's this all about? Other pregnant mothers are talking about how they could feel their baby kicking, but for Rebecca, it was like a, a scrimmage was being held inside of her body. It, it, it wasn't just uncomfortable, it was, it was terrifying. 
And the question that she asks in verse 22, why is this happening to me? This actually is a hard sentence to translate in the Hebrew. It, it could also be something like this. I can't live like this. She's finally pregnant, but the pregnancy is unbearable. And to her credit, she prayed, she brought her, her situation to God. She asked God what was happening. And, and in verse 23, God answers her question. We read this, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. This verse is a, a prophecy. A prophecy that shapes everything that follows in the book of Genesis. And, and the real kicker in what God said is his, his declaration that the older will serve the younger. That, that wasn't done back in that way back then in that culture. In fact, in, uh, it's still true in some cultures today. The firstborn child was seen next in line as the head of the family. They also got most of the inheritance. So it's possible that when Rebecca heard this word from the Lord, she, she winced, oh, great, this is going to complicate things. And finally, the nine months, and I think probably less than nine months, you know, often happens with twins, are over and the day finally arrives for the birth of these two boys. And so we read this in verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. Surprise! And the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand, grasping Esau's head, so he was named Jacob. I think when you read this, you can't help but go, ooh. You know, like, I mean, imagine you're Rebecca and you, you look up from your labor and, 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 and you see this, your, your firstborn child is red, really red and, and extremely hairy. And I mean extremely hairy. This, his whole body is covered with hair. It's made such an impression on his parents that it got him his name, Esau. Guess what Esau means? Whoa, Harry! Huh? Now, the deal about him being red, all my life I, I thought that was how he had red hair. And honestly, I never knew this until, the, until I worked on this sermon. Some, some scholars think that these twins had what's known as twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. And, and what occurs with that is the blood moves from one twin to the other. And, and when this happens many times, it, uh, those, those infants can have problems depending on the severity of, of the transfusion. Evidently, it wasn't severe enough to cause problems for Rebecca's boy, so that, that was good, but it, it does explain Esau's redness. And because it was normal for the twin receiving the blood to be the larger of the two, it's likely that Esau was the bigger of the two boys. Now, if that was true for these twins, it sure didn't make any difference in the aggressiveness of the second. Because the second son came close behind with a firm grip on the heel of his brother. He's, he's given the name Jacob, which, which could have had two meanings. It, it could have meant God protects, but it sounded like the Hebrew word 
for heal. Which is interesting, considering what Jacob was doing when he was born. He was, he was grabbing his brother's heel. Which makes some people think, some scholars think, that, that his name meant heel grabber. So every time his mom called him for dinner, it was like, heel grabber! Yeah. And Harry. <laughs> yeah. What you think of that? Which actually makes sense when you consider what he did to his brother in today's story. And thus again in the chapter we come to next Sunday. He, he grabs what he wants. He does what it takes to get what his brother had, his father's birthright. And that's the reason why I've given the series that we're doing right now, the title that I've given it. Jacob, Jacob wanted to keep his life in his grasp. He wanted control. And what he needed to learn in his life was to finally surrender himself to God, putting himself in the grasp of God. Now, let, let's, let's look at this whole thing of the, the heel grabber grabbing, all right? It brings us back to the story, verse 27. Listen to this. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Pick up on any family dynamics here? Quite a contrast between these two sons, definitely each one favored differently by mom and dad. Isaac went for Esau, and Rebekah preferred Jacob. I I think Esau's life song would have been, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play, you know. And I think Jacob was more of an HGTV kind of a guy, like the, the, you know, the Food Channel? A macho man versus nacho man kind of a deal. All right? So you got daddy's, daddy's boy and, and mommy's boy. Do you think there was some comparison going on between the parents? <clears throat> Better believe it. Not a healthy <clears throat> dynamic for peace between brothers. See, I think these guys were set up for relational failure. It's easy to imagine a lot of conflict between these two brothers as they grew up, and, and what Jacob does in today's story took it to another level. Look, look at this, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, macho man, Esau, Esau macho man, came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? And so Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore on oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and he drank, and then he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. Here's my impression of these two guys. Jacob comes across like a 
likable guy. Someone who goes along to get along while he quietly is making his plans to get ahead. Esau, on the other hand, he's not a planner. He makes his decisions on the fly on what feels right at the moment. I think what we just read supports this. You've got a normal day in the life of these two guys. Esau's out hunting in Jacob's home cooking. Esau's been in the fresh air, physically active for a full day of hunting, and he comes home with a raging hunger and doing what I'm guessing was typical for Esau in a booming voice. He tells Jacob to give him some of the stew that he's cooking pronto. And suddenly Jacob's quick thinking kicks into action. He sees his opportunity to get what he wants. He'll make a deal with his brother, a full bowl of stew for Esau's birthright. Sell me your birthright, he says, and the stew is yours. In fact, he said, you can have the whole pot. To which Esau replies in what I would imagine to be true Esau fashion, operating out of the moment and what he's feeling. I'm starving, man. If I don't eat now, I'm going to die. What's good to birthright if I'm a dead man? little exaggeration. And so they cut a deal. Esau gets his stew and walks away with a full stomach. Jacob gets the birthright and everything that comes with it. Which brings us to the point of today's sermon. And this question. Who messed up here big time? Not who? Tell me, who? Esau. Now, it'd be real easy, wouldn't it, to focus on Jacob? I mean, what a jerk to con his poor starving brother, right? Boy, there's no doubt that Jacob had his issues, and we're going to talk about that next week. But here's the deal, everybody. Esau knew exactly what he was giving up. He knew what it meant for him to have the birthright. He knew that it came with the promises that God gave to Abraham. Remember those promises? Land of his own, a great nation, a great name, and greater than all of this, that every person on this earth would ultimately be blessed through him. Wow. These promises were first given to Abraham. They were passed down to Esau's father, Isaac, and now he stood next in line to receive each one of those promises, and he gave them away for a single meal. I think the final two sentences of this chapter tell us exactly how much Esau valued these promises. Scripture says it this way, he ate and drank and then got up and left, and so Esau despised his birthright. See, the way I read it, he didn't give it another thought. He ate and drank and got up and left. Bada bing, bada boom. That's it. It's all taken care of. Time for a nap. To really understand how seriously Esau messed up what really was involved in his decision to give up his birthright for a single meal. we got to go all the way to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter and verse 16, and this is what God says about this. God said, 
See that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Esau's failure was not that he was driven by hunger or that he was impetuous. It was that he was godless. And this doesn't mean that he didn't believe in God, but that God didn't matter to him. Having God's blessing in his life wasn't worth more to him than the price of a single meal. He just didn't care. It wasn't that he didn't want the birthright. It was that he wanted Jacob's stew more. He despised his birthright by putting a garage sale price tag on it. Bottom line, God didn't matter to him. He was godless. You know, friends, it's possible that this is the way you've been living your life. You've been trading what has eternal value for what gives you immediate and very temporary satisfaction. It may be that you're faced with this choice right now. You've, you've got something staring you in the face that's so appealing, that's got such a grip on you emotionally and physically, that you're about to give up God's blessing in your life to get it. God's blessing in your life and, and your ability to bring God's blessing into the lives of others. You've been putting or you're about to put a garage sale price on the life God offers you. And what God can do through you in the lives of others. You see, the deal for all of us is that Satan will always, always put immediate pleasure in front of us, some savory stew. Satan will always tempt us to choose between obedience to God and momentary pleasure. Again and again, he'll whisper, what's it worth to you? Right now, it might be a friend or a set of friends who are, who are, you know, are, are taking you away from God. It might be a job that's compromising what you know is right. It might be a relationship where the other person is pressuring you to compromise sexually. It, it might be keeping your life safe and comfortable. Very, a very small world where it's all about you. It might be money, where you're always thinking there's never quite enough, that there's always something else you want before you're willing to surrender this part of your life to God. It might be a marriage, where getting out could make you happy. Getting out's not the right thing to do, but you're thinking about it. could be anger and the bitterness that you're enjoying hanging on to. It might be the gratification that comes with pornography or, or any number of addictions, drugs or alcohol. I mean, you name it. 
Trade what God has for you for anything. And what you're doing is putting a garage sale price on the cross of Jesus Christ on what Jesus did for you when he gave his life for your sin. And with this, you're putting a garage sale price on what God can do in your life and what God can do through your life to meet the spiritual needs of people, to be a blessing to others. So this morning, friend, I just want to say this. Don't sell your life short. Don't put a garage sale price tag on your life. God created you to be, to be a Stradivarius. Don't trade it for the life of a weed eater. Let's pray. All bow our heads. I'm just ask this to be a very personal time between you and God. Okay? And you know, I mean, God has spoken to you this morning. Why don't you just talk with Him now? Oh, Father. This can be very real for any one of us. Father, it's possible that some of us this morning are standing right where Esau stood. And right now we're just being, we're being pressured in our life. We're being tempted to just make a trade. Or maybe we've been doing it all along. God, you have this life for us. But we've been saying other things mean more. And we've been trading it away. Father, for any one of us this morning who've been living that way, I ask that your Holy Spirit would give us the courage and the strength and the conviction to just pick up the life that you've given and to make it our life. God, to not let go of of what has eternal value, to grab tightly onto it and allow our lives to be in your grasp. In Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.